Living the Dream acknowledges the traditional owners of the land it is recorded on, especially the Jagera and Turrbal peoples, elders past, present and future, and their continuing struggles for justice and self-determination. Podcast. Living the Dream is an irregularly published anti-capitalist podcast from Brisbane. Hi, this is Dave here, and you're listening to Living the Dream. You can follow me on Twitter at With Sober Senses. You're about to hear an interview that I did on the 1st of April with Godfrey Mose, who's the director of the United Workers' Union. Now, when I did the interview with Godfrey, I failed to uh, explain to him a key piece of podcasting magic, which meant the recording of the interview, uh, my vocals, are com- pretty much unlistenable. But I guess that's a win for the listeners because Godfrey still comes through as clear as a bell with very interesting things to say. So in today's show, what I'm going to do is try to edit my own voice out as pos- much as possible, and it'll just be maximum. Godfrey all the time. But before we leap into the interview, there was a few things that have happened uh, recently uh, in relation to COVID-19 that I wanted to address and situate our thinking about. The federal government's announced at least two new elements of its stimulus package. Now that stimulus package currently, if we take into account federal government activity, the activity of the Reserve Bank of Australia, the activity of the states, is over $300 billion. But two new key elements were recently announced. The first is the announcement of the job keeper payment. So this is a payment that the state will be making directly to employers if they can prove that they've been impacted by the economic downturn catalyzed by COVID-19 as a subsidy for paying their wages. So if a business is smaller than a billion dollars and they can demonstrate that they've lost 30% of their income, then they will receive a payment for every worker uh, of $1,500 a fortnight. And if a business is over a billion dollars, and if they can prove they've had a um, reduction in uh, in business of, of 50%, then they will also receive that payment, and that is for six months. So here we see the state directly stepping in to subsidise the payment of wages. Secondly, the federal government has also announced that it'll now subsidise, that, na- that is now making childcare free for users. It's interesting how this is taking place. So the details of that will be worked out next week where they'll be overhauled. And it's aimed at children, uh, parents who still need to send their children to childcare will not have to pay any fees. What the government will do from Monday will start making payments to childcare centres at the rate of about 50% of the usual fees that they pay based on the attendance numbers in last February. So what we've seen at childcare is, of course, a great drop in the amount of children who've gone to childcare. That's an incredible drop in income. So what the government is doing is stepping in here to subsidise the interests, that subsidise the, uh, the incomes of these businesses. If we take the stimulus package on a whole, what do we see? We see intervention with the aim of keeping 
finance capital circulating, keeping the money markets operating. We see the state entering in to supplement and support the incomes for business, and we see the state stepping in to to, uh, supplement and support the incomes for workers, whether these are workers still at work or the rising amount of unemployed. So the state here is attempting a strategy for a period of time, say about six months, of allowing capital to move into a moment of hibernation or pause. Capitalism is, is of course, a mode of production defined by its relentless, restless, dynamic motion. A motion that drives it inherently towards crisis in the long term, but also has been interrupted and that crisis catalyzed by the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, the state, of course, does not sit outside of capitalist society, nor the capitalist mode of production. Rather, the state exists within both and dependent on both. Thus, by the state swallowing up these contradictions for a particular period of time, this will then manifest internally in the state in a great accumulation of debt. There's a fashion amongst radical and left thinkers at the moment, influenced by modern monetary theory, to argue that debt presents no substantial problem to the state. I think these arguments need to be addressed in detail more at a later date. However, what I just want to park here at a point in time is that it's at the end of the COVID-19 pandemic. This debt will need to be paid. And it's going to be a struggle over who pays that accumulation of contradictions. Just a few more remarks to set the context of the interview with Godfrey. In a recent press conference on the 2nd of April, the Prime Minister Scott Morrison made the following comment. Now, the Attorney-General has been working closely with the union movement. I spoke to Sally McManus again this morning, and I want to thank her for her engagement in what is a very difficult time. They understand that, and I thank them for the way they've engaged in this discussion. There are, there are no blue teams or red teams, or there are no more unions or bosses. There are just Australians now, and all, and that's all that matters. An Australian national interest and all Australians working together. And I thank all of those who are coming together in this spirit. People have then pointed out on social media, of course, that this has not been what people have experienced in practice, that sackings continue, persecution of staff who identify um, risks linked to COVID-19 and the rest. But But beyond that move, it's interesting to point out that in the response to the crisis that the Prime Minister at least sees rather than a moment of antagonism but a moment of unity representatives of the state, of capital and representatives of labour in the form of trade unions working together as one body. Earlier this week I attended two different events run by the trade unions online. The first was a presentation run by Sally McManus, I think it was framed as a beer and chips event. It was a pretty pathetic affair. 
what we were presented with was the standard kind of triumphalist rhetoric that the trade union movement in Australia mobilises, despite dwindling influence, membership numbers and amount of industrial action. And the argument that McManus presented was that the JobKeeper payment was the result of a great struggle by the trade unions and should be seen as our victory and that we needed to keep on fighting to extend it further. Now, while the critiques made of the limitations of the JobKeeper program were many, it was pretty much a surprise for me and many other listeners that there had been some kind of great campaign going on or that we had been involved at all or that we'd won a victory. Now, I don't doubt that probably trade union officials had been involved in discussions and negotiations with the state and also with employer organisations, but that's certainly different from a movement. The following day I participated, and I think this was run out of the Victorian trade unions, in an online picket. I could only participate in that for a certain amount of time because it was just so depressing. I, we had a series of uh, presentations where people told us to join Twitter and to uh, call up and speak to uh, you know, Talkback Radio. Now, there have been some huge uh, numbers reported who were meant to participate in that event. But when I was participating in it, they reported that 200 people were involved. And when I was involved in um, the Sally McManus's presentation, watching that, they mentioned that 500 people were involved. So that's pretty much the less than and then equivalent to a average or less than average episode of this podcast. And I think if the trade union movement um, cannot get a wider audience than a podcast run by two middle-aged suburban dads, then that's really saying something. The rhetoric of national interest has reminded me about a quote uh, from Mario Tronti's Workers and Capital. Tronti comments that working class thought has condemned itself to this fragmentary view every time that has swallowed the bourgeois ideology of the general interest. Tronti's argument, similar to the argument of many communist and radical writers, is that it is impossible to understand society from a bird's-eye view that tries to manage what is good for society on a whole. Rather, it is only by locating oneself in the partisan struggles that divide but constitute society can one both understand that society and push in a way for the creation of the kind of, of modes of living that are worth living. We can't, even in a crisis, try to solve problems for the good, at all, good of all, as in the good of capitalist society, but rather we can only operate from our partisan position within struggle as a way to both advance that struggle and create a different form of social organisation. And it was with that in mind that I want to turn to the interview with Godfrey. The United Workers Union have received a lot of attention recently, and one is because they published uh, what is called a workers' plan to survive COVID-19 COVID crisis, a plan that's remarkable in that it demands incomes for all, it rejects the division between citizens and migrant workers, and it begins to articulate, in fairly guarded terms, a vision of an alternative form of economics based on workers' control. There's been a number of different interviews with key members of the United Workers' Union, which I will share here as well. 
What's also been interesting, of course, is that their members, both before COVID-19 and during COVID-19, have been taking industrial action in their own interest, um, breaking, I think, with the legal constrictions most of the trade union movement imagined that they're in to advance their own interests and therefore the interests of the class. I start the interview by asking Godfrey if you can explain who, I, who is the United Workers Union, a bit of the history, and who they represent. Yeah, so United Workers Union is the merger of uh, United Voice and the National Union of Workers, hence United Workers. Um, and we cover and have members organising in a great many of significant um, uh, segments of the working class in Australia. So lots of members in care, whether that's aged care, disability care, uh, lots of members in education, whether it's school cleaners, early childhood educators, uh, members in warehousing and logistics, food production, general manufacturing, hospitality, the easiest way that we explain our membership is kind of along two um, two axes uh, or supply chains, if you will, across goods and services. Um, so one line of members runs from um, from farm to table, and another line of membership runs from cradle to grave. So a lot of necessary work for social reproduction um, is what we cover. A lot of our workers are in work that is not bullshit jobs, essentially. Um, so jobs that are absolutely necessary to keep people functioning. So in warehouses, our members will be the ones who pick orders um, and put them in, in bundles to get them dispatched off onto trucks uh, and drive around on forklifts and um, other equipment handling um devices we will have members who will be looking after um, people in aged care facilities and doing a lot of that sort of care work anything that that capitalism hasn't found a way to offshore or otherwise automate and still requires blood and bone um, to get the job done whether that's with people's recognized skills or with a lot of unrecognized skills that are absolutely necessary that's who our members are and, and what we do yeah there's a there is a huge diversity amongst our membership um it's it tends to be slightly more towards um uh in terms of gender breakdown more towards women um but it's it's pretty close uh, we have a significant portion of migrant workers, whether that's temporary or newly arrived permanent workers, people who are trying to find a foothold, I guess, in the labour market. They're a significant percentage of our membership. We used to be, when I was with the NUW, overwhelmingly concentrated geographically in Victoria and New South Wales, but we now have a pretty even spread um, of members around the country. Um, so we have lots of members, for instance, in, in Queensland and Northern Queensland, Northern Territory and, and WA, and quite a vibrant organising campaign amongst First Nations workers as well. So it, 
the membership tends to reflect the working class, I think, as it as it is. Um, although we still have good a bunch of good members who are in relatively privileged positions um, and tend to be whiter than average and more male than average uh, and earn more than average, but across the entirety of the membership, it reflects the diversity of the Australian working class. Where we get power, we tend to be able to get people um, from from casual forms of employment through to permanent forms of employment. Our membership is, I would say, roughly 50-50 between people who are in an insecure form of work and people who have uh, fairly secure permanent full-time roles and get access to leave. Um, but we also know that in order to reform the working class, we've got to, um, we have to organise with workers who are very precarious, some so precarious that they don't even have rights to legally work in Australia, let alone dealing with the casual permanent distinction. At this point, I interrupted Godfrey to ask him to explain more the relationship between the United Workers' Union's break with the dominant tradition of protectionist, often racist, racist, nationalist uh, stance of the trade union movement in this country, but also to explain a little bit more about what was meant by reforming the working class. I also asked Godfrey if he would consider the United Workers' Union having a socialist objective. Well, I'm, I mean, in an organisational sense, like I would say that generally across United Workers' Union um, and more so the general, I think officially we recognise that, frankly, most workers, an overwhelming majority of workers are not in a union. Um, and and not otherwise in other formal organisational structures that allow them to, um, in an organised fashion, take action collectively. Um, And so our mission is to expressly, um, and we use less less formal language, I guess, uh, and break it down, but basically grow, help workers, build leaders, grow big, take action and win permanently, which is, you know, organise and have workers run the world. Yeah, I think um, in, in like very practical day-to-day language, we say we want we want workers to win permanently um, and you can't win permanently without changing the relations of production. No one's teased that out thoroughly and frankly I don't think it's really a good allocation of time and resources (laughs) for the full-time paid staff to tease that out given the crisis that we're in but there is a general recognition that the system is broken and we need workers to win permanently and I think that that's very simple language leads to very radical places. Our attitude is that every worker counts, every worker is um, equal and what matters is that they're, they're there at a place they're doing work or they have a relationship to systems of production um, and it's not our place to get caught up in um, like nationalistic sentiments or um, those types of concerns and so really what that's come about with I think where that's genuinely started is just we want to be Uh, fulfill our mission seriously and be effective 
as as a union of organized workers and therefore to be effective you have to you don't you have to mobilize um workers as they are and where they're where they're from and and not write off whole sections of of the workforce and we don't have it's not 1982 we don't have the luxury to pretend that we have that sort of power even even going away from uh questions of values and ideology uh even just on the level of like operational effectiveness you can't win unless you seek to organize temporary migrant workers and you can't properly organize temporary migrant workers without genuinely trying to provide systems of support and platforms of empowerment for those workers to be able to collectively themselves take control of their destiny which therefore leads to calls around visa amnesty basically claims for workers to say we want to have the right to have rights and that's where that's come from and i think the covid19 situation neatly draws how you cannot write off whole sections of your own community and population without it having devastating impacts for everyone else because you know if we've got over three million temporary migrants in australia it's not going to help anyone fighting um, to resolve COVID-19 if those groups of workers don't have access to Medicare or forms of income support or decent occupational health and safety rights at their workplace so that those workplaces don't become sites of transmission. So we're all in the same boat and we need to work together to win and that's where that that's the genesis of us taking I guess what is quite a radical stand on organizing temporary migrant workers which is simply this you can't not do that and win the national union of workers you know was built upon the federated dominant packers union which um occupied a really interesting space in on the right in the australian trade union movement um because it tended to be politically conservative but industrially militant um which might seem like a contradiction but i think it came from the idea that like let's not get caught up in the politics the parliamentarians aren't going to win it for us and we don't want some random crazy people in their kind of their worldview so we're just going to have to go and do stuff and win it for ourselves if we want this right let's just go and strike for it and see what we get it's it's kind of an interesting historical anomaly i guess that meant that as the left the official trade union movement left kind of suffered defeats and we were not we were not immune from that we were less impacted by by those defeats culturally because we were kind of never within that milieu i guess and so therefore managed to have a link back to 1970s militancy that persisted and then could get rekindled through our union in the late 2000s early 2010s um for some useful victories but not at the scale that honestly we need to change the dial for the whole working class so it's actually that that militancy and the position that the nuw was in within labor and the actu factionally is not as strange as it might appear at first blush At this point, I raised the question of amalgamation with Godfrey, and I posed that in the dominant radical or left understanding, 
The amalgamation of trade unions is understood as something that comes out of or part of the defeat of the Accord period, and we associate that with the reduction of workers' democracy and power within their own trade union structures. Against this, I asked Godfrey to explain how amalgamation is working within the United Workers' Union, particularly because it seems to be pitched as part of a process of increasing democracy and increasing workers' power. I think the key difference is that a whole bunch of the late 1980s, early 1990s amalgamations were around like a rationalization of the uh, rationalization of the trade union movement from a bureaucratic perspective um, to better control the working class, to have a fewer number of key decision makers that would then go down the operational line through to organizers and delegates and members. That, you know, didn't play out in particularly good ways for the trade union movement. But what we've essentially done is in this merger, we've said, look, we need scale. We need to be able to organize big um, and we need to rehash the entire structures of the way that we operate in order to um in order to be more effective even at a staffing level in order to therefore have a platform for delegates and members to be able to do more exciting things at scale so kind of like it, it it is a contradiction in a sense that mergers can be incredibly bad they've never with there is no track record that anyone can point to me historically prior to our merger that has said this merger has clearly worked between unions um, and therefore mergers are the answer with capital T and a capital A. Um, what we have essentially done is it's probably, it, it, it's not really just a merger. It is legally an amalgamation, but we have, we spent a couple of years trying to work through not what we would call a bolt-on, which is what traditional mergers have been like. You keep the branches from all the various unions. They might have a couple of branches in each state. And then there's a federal office that sits on top of that that has bears very little relationship in terms of relations with members um, of the union. And then that federal office deals with the ACTU. And then the ACTU is like two layers of officialdom removed from the members and the ACTU kind of acts as the union of the federal offices of all the different unions in liaising with the Labor Party, which is there now three layers of bureaucracy removed away from workers on the shop floor. Um, what we've done is said, we are going to create a structure that is radically different um, and radically simplified uh, in terms of how the bureaucracy works and frankly you need leadership and bureaucracy and if I didn't think that I would have no right to be doing what I do every day there might be people that or there are people that think differently and that's fine but what we've done is said we need to radically simplify that and so we have no state branches there are state secretaries but they're appointed positions that mainly are designed for us to be able to interact with other state-based unions and union structures and political structures where it's where we think it's important so that structure that radically simplified structure i would say 
I I have a theory. I don't, I don't think it's incredibly well researched. It's maybe just more of a gut instinct that where workers take the organizational, the most effective organizational structures at, for capital at the time, um, and then take those organizational structures and can go beyond those organized organized structures in a socialist or workerist way that correlates with with workers getting more organized winning victories and so a lot of existing trade union structures have very fordist modes of of working where you had large top-down structures with lots of organizers kind of working in one giant department but not really working together um and within that, it was, there was overlaid like a feudal system between the state branches and the federal office um, on the one hand, and then on the other hand, a very like parishioner system between organisers uh, and their delegates where they'd go around and have cups of tea talking to the same people all the time and generally administer to their flock as they dealt with being on the wrong end of the capitalist equation. And what we've done is essentially go beyond the capitalist, Fordist mode that a lot of unions were stuck in for 20, 30, 40 years post it being the most relevant form of um, capitalist organisation and go towards a structure that more tends towards, I guess, the way that, that the big tech and big corporations tend to work today in terms of small teams not to replicate systems of exploitation unquestionably, but to take um, take advances within capitalist organisation, but then to repurpose them for for um, to be in the hands of workers. Really, the way I was talking to um, comrades, um, delegates, and organisers. Uh, a couple of weeks ago was like, listen, we're, we're four months into being a new union and this is our second major national crisis. So like that's kind of very interesting timing in of itself. But I actually think that it is working. We know that there is a lot of work that you can't really properly plan for and account for pre the start of our new union that does take a bit of time and that we were churning through and churning through at a pretty good rate that is just really not exciting administrative work that just needs to be done, need to be done, needs to be done once. And so we can move on. And a lot of that was happening. And while that was happening, the union was still growing overall. Um, and this is all pre-COVID-19. We had it. We had our inaugural member council. We were planning for our inaugural member convention that was going to be tied for May Day this year and be in Queensland and be all kind of, I think, super exciting. Um, we were like empowering delegates to be able to like take charge of their own workplaces with their co-workers and setting up structures for workers to be able to talk across state boundaries. And with the exception of like very necessarily not getting hundreds of workers in the same physical space, I think that the COVID-19 crisis has just 
supercharged a lot of that a lot of that work that needs to happen for democratization purposes um and it's a really simple really simple couple of things there so we we have a portion of our membership it's not huge it's not a huge workforce but they manufacture all the pallets that goods that go through warehouses get put on so kind of really important part of the supply chain for everything that we need and those delegates are now starting they had a video conference call they're now starting to chat across all of the state boundaries and that's incredibly important um we are going to have a online mass meeting of the entirety of our membership today to um take them through the key kind of core demands that we formulated entire membership yeah so we've had i think about four thousand five hundred, and this was with no like lead up time really we just said okay we've got to start doing this uh and we'll have over four thousand people probably over four thousand five hundred by now that have like registered and i think that if we keep doing that say once a week or once a fortnight or whatever structure kind of makes sense um that's going to be a very powerful collective thing that can keep happening um so there are examples like that from small like smaller companies with workers starting to talk to each other and getting connected and networked through to that sort of big example and i think that usefully for us because we're all still fairly tied into the enterprise bargaining knot before COVID 19 this crisis that now impacts everyone just has kind of has hashtag changed the rules it's cut through the tangle of um, bs that we found ourselves in every day um, like a sword through the proverbial gordian knot so it's a crisis that um i think can be useful to the reorganization of the working class currently in a way that is maybe different from the global financial crisis at this point, I asked Godfrey to give us his assessment of the Change the Rules campaign, and I also asked him how much it cost. Yeah, some old guy in the 19th century wrote that history repeats, first as tragedy, then as farce, um, and Change the Rules is the history repeating part of the Your Rights at Work campaign. Um, it was, if Your Rights at Work was the tragic what could have been, Um, moment if we hadn't have focused overly on the political or let the political arm of the labor movement dictate strategy um, or scope of actual operations to the industrial arm change the rules is was a way of repeating that that is not tragic but bordering on um, farcical in its impact not in terms of the actual work that a whole bunch of people put in and some of the thinking around like how you would engage in politics um there's still some really good elements in there but the impact itself is just like a blip and i don't think it's fair to blame the amount of money that clive palmer would have put into the election um or to blame misleading facebook advertisements because yeah or or queenslanders um i mean yeah 
like if your sphere of operations is permanently employed workers who are permanently in Australia but not Queenslanders, you don't have a huge coalition there anyway. But the the key the key there is that those things they did have an impact on the election, no no doubt about it. I remember standing on a polling booth and having a regular working class Labor voter talking to me about like whether or not Bill Shorten wanted to introduce um, an estate tax and frankly it would be a bloody great idea if we had that but like it was not on anyone's radar um, other than a bunch of Facebook ads and and that is a reflection that had an impact but it's a reflection of a state of disorganisation um, it's a reflection of a state of relative um, operational weakness that that a bunch of half-truths that people semi-paid attention to um, online or on TV could have an impact and it could impact workers because they were hugely atomized and those sorts of things are kind of like say they're like weak forces on the on in society in the sense that they can go over a large distance but where people are organized and clumped together and they have those bonds usually that it's just noise that washes over people there's be very few people you who you could put this question to which is like what are the concrete and specific demands of the change the rules campaign and get a sensible answer out of it because what it ended up being was like a log of claims for a bunch of union officials about what they would like to see and that was like hugely meaningful for a very small group of people but not widely or deeply felt through the community I don't have access to official figures at the top, but it'd be it'd be easily north of ten million dollars. You could do a a lot of other things with that money, but the fact that I think the fact that what we're experiencing um, within the trade union movement is a, it, it's mainly a lack of confidence. And the good thing about what Sally did was at least Sally said, "Hey, this is a thing. We're going to do it. Let's do it." And it, it, it was not a great theory of winning and it didn't win and it didn't work out, but at least it was a theory of winning, which was better than, which was better than nothing, frankly. Um, and that, that was the, like the kind of operational challenge that I think they faced at the ACTU. But the problem is I don't think that it's, it's even fair for um, a union um, or, or the socialist movement more broadly defined to look even look to the ACTU and say you should provide us with leadership because that has never historically worked out well no good changes no sparks that light the fire that whatever um, ever comes from has ever come from that like body that is supposed to be coordinating all the other trade unions in Australia it's just changes never worked out that way so yeah, so I'm, what I'm saying is like, yes, those criticisms of the ACTU are, are valid, but it's also kind of unfair on the in the first place to say that the role of this relatively small peak body should be to solve everyone else's problems. Um, it gets annoying if they get in the way when people are doing good things, but um, they tried to fulfill a mission that I don't think could be fairly fulfilled. Um and so while I've been hugely critical of the ACTU, I think that um, responsibility needs to be, um, like if workers are going to take 
power um, and if unions are going to help workers take power, we might as well just start doing that where we can. And even if it might seem small scale, that's fine. Let's find those spaces for change. At this point, I ask Godfrey if he can give us any insight into the debates that might be going on in the trade union movement now that the Change the Rules campaign is over. My point being that friends and comrades I know that are within trade unions often describe a quite rich world of internal discussion about strategy and tactics. But for those of us who are either members or not in trade unions, um, these discussions are just invisible for to us. Yeah, I... Um... I get the feeling that there's a few there's a few different camps. There are people who are just trying to like hold on to the bits that they've they've got, and they're resigned to um, capitalist always winning, which I think is incorrect because I think my my broader analysis is that the relative weakness of organised labour currently in Australia reflects and is a product of the relative weakness and um, lack of dynamism of capitalist system more generally so there's still huge opportunities there um and then you've got people who want to be a bit more adaptive but they're looking for the technical fix where's the where's the digital innovation um and, and what can we do with different tools and that that's useful tactically um and a lot of the analysis is not wrong on its tactical or technocratic terms but like is not grounded in a broader strategic vision and then you have a group of people who attempting to be more transformative um, and trying stuff and it may or may not work and frankly as long as we need we need to have a more comfortable culture within the trade union movement of criticizing ourselves and criticizing each other but from a comradely perspective because the biggest problem, the, the biggest two problems to getting anything going uh, are now learnt from decades of defeat, and that is one, just people have forgotten to have confidence in the power that workers can exercise collectively, and so that lack of confidence plays out. And then number two, the issue um, along with that lack of confidence um is just a lack of experience of, of workers actually taking that sort of that sort of action. Um, and I think if we can overcome those things, that's huge. At this point, the conversation jumps ahead to talk about the present crisis. And in particular, what I now want Godfrey to, to do and what I ask him to do is if he could explain the thinking behind the United Workers Union's recent uh, press release that detailed a worker's plan to survive COVID-19. What I really want to hear is the thinking behind this approach, how Godfrey thinks the United Workers Union can fight for it, and how they think they'll win. Yeah, so um, there's a lot to unpack in that question. I think that, I think I'll start with the systemic uh, and then the plans and then the role and the, and the, the workflow. The systemic issue is that um, I, I suspect that capitalism, I'm sure it will find ways to astound me in its ability to adapt, but um, I think it's, it's 
levels of relatively low investment and low productivity and low innovation coming into this particular COVID-19 crisis, this particular crisis has only highlighted those um, those issues, let alone the other issues of like the mounting costs onto society and the environment of, of capitalists, capitalism's extractive nature. Um, and so um, that is now, I think, for more and more people being thrown into fairly stark relief as they have to sit at home or be made to work um, in times when they feel incredibly unsafe. And so I think that the meta, the, well, the, the broader strategy that we need to shift from um, in the in the on the socialist side of things is away from organizing for income because i think that that assumes a certain dynamism within the capitalist system even just for a privileged few in the entire global system that is no longer there uh, and shift towards a um, program of organizing for ownership not to say that people shouldn't be struggling for higher wages but that consciously the key objectives are for workers to take ownership of things in many different ways and so then coming to the particular demands that we have as a union um, they're really about they're really a conscious effort to have an intervention on what the limits of plausibility um, for workers within a pretty shit system um, but in a way that points to our core union values of making sure every worker counts, everyone is treated equally and has dignity and respect, and that we're not saying some workers get stuff and some workers don't get stuff. So the demands that, that we've put forward are, are there insofar as how do they impact upon everyone? Um, how do we build a, a, a set of demands that... Um, have meaning for the entirety of the working class um, that reach the scale of the existing problem um, and crisis because this particular crisis what i'm seeing on a lot of the manufacturing side of things that i more interact with on a day-to-day side of um, of production is that a lot of places need to retool for production on the basis of need rather than on the basis of value and but they still, because they're capitalist enterprises being supported by the state, what they need is they need money from the state to substitute for the value that they would have otherwise realised on the market in order for the production for the basis of need to be pumped out so that people have enough hand sanitizer and face masks and everything else in terms of PPE and medical equipment that we that we need. So... Um, those demands are really about not not being overly detailed, but being able to draw firm markers in the ground about what what the articulation of fairly commonly held values that, that the working class still holds to, and I think will hold to for a pretty long time in terms of um, people understanding that they have dignity and worth and should be treated equally and with respect, and what that would mean for this crisis um so coming that's that's where these claims 
are located in. Not to say that they're that they're perfect, um, that they're incredibly detailed, but to say very clearly what we stand for um, as part of a recomposition effort of the working class. Um, and there, yeah, there there are gaps in there by necessity because if you want to put something out. Um, relatively quickly that at least sketches out a where you stand and b leave space for workers within those framework to build up a vision of the world that they've actually crafted you can't have everything everywhere like we haven't even got on the topic within what we've demanded about like working hours and how you might better share out reduced working hours to deal with the current crisis and that's just a that's just a reflection of the speed with which we need to try and respond more than anything else. I'll provide a link to the United Workers Union statement, Workers Plan to Survive COVID-19 Crisis. No layoffs, income guarantee, tax relief and rent mortgage freezes. But to quickly summarise, it has three different elements in it. So first of all, it says what Australian workers need, the jobs guarantee, income guarantee, tax reduction, moratorium on rent and mortgage payments, what the country needs or our country needs is the language used, a visa amnesty for migrant workers, Medicare for all, to, you know, for including visa holders and undocumented workers, and a rejection, uh, actually saying zero tolerance for xenophobic nationalism or attacks on migrant communities. Then what our economy needs, new renewable energy gener generation and export infrastructure, uh, to be part of the stimulus package. Don't bail out essential sectors, buy them, bring public goods into public ownership and bail out necessary industries only with strict conditions of worker co-determination, ethical labour and environmental standards. Uh, and I pointed out at this point in time that in my reading of it, the phrase worker co-determination seemed to do some considerable heavy lifting. Yeah, so um, there's a whole bunch of other stuff that we've thought through about what that might mean um, at its base it, it could mean um, just simply a layer of um, managerial boards being elected by the workers themselves um, as in the German model which is still entirely consistent with a form of capitalism um, although probably has some pretty significant impact in, in Australian business culture but not systemically different through to um, where uh, where we think it's feasible mutualizing um, private corporations so that they are either worker cooperatives run on a one worker one vote basis or um, maybe multi multi stakeholder cooperatives um, which is a really wanky term to just say that you know different people other than workers get impacted by production decisions um, so like including people as consumers, people as producers, um, people who live in a given area. So it's it's supposed to be like on the economic side of things going, okay, this COVID-19 crisis challenges issues for people's incomes immediately, um, for investment in the future that won't be made, arguably wasn't being made anyway and needs to be made. Um, and and reveals the role of the state in propping up the capitalist system in a way that it always was, but it's just like really clear now for people. So it provides an opening to say, well, that's our money that's going to that corporation. Why does 
Alan Joyce get to make all the decisions on Qantas and, and not the tens of thousands of workers who work for Qantas because they've provided more money collectively than Alan Joyce has into keeping the thing afloat. At this point, I asked Godfrey to go a little bit further to explain how he thinks we can actually fight for and win uh, these struggles in a condition of lockdown. And I present some of my criticisms that I had of the Vic Trade Hall's uh, online picket. Yeah, well, I think um, the fact that Vic Trades Hall could just start doing it um, is is good. Like, the first time anyone does something is never really the greatest articulation of that thing. So um, while I am really was overly swamped yesterday trying to set up a whole bunch of other digital stuff for people that I work with to be get them to do similar and smaller scale and more two-way sort of things the fact that that's happening and Big Trades Hall has taken the lead on just doing that to make a start is is important and it's not so much like um, how effective like doing a couple of things here or there and Twitter is it's where it goes from there and that is the really big question like we there is no reason why we can't have meetings of tens of thousands of of workers as a semi-regular event um and for them to have an element of deliberation and voting and and productive democracy and so i think that where we go from here is that what everyone needs to be aware of including all your listeners is that the core element of the wage-labour relationship, at least legally speaking in terms of its ideological foundation, not its day-to-day reality, um, what separates it from a feudal relationship and from a servant relationship is that someone's supposed to be entering into it as a rational market actor. And what you can never take away from, and even in the the worst of the 19th century common law decisions that articulate what the wage-labor relationship is. A worker always has the right to not work in unsafe situations. Um, Now, any rough history of the working class and wage-labor relationships tell you that that is not the case at all, but that's the, like, ideological kind of guys it's put on on the wage labor relationship rather than its reality but there is supposed to be a guarantee that the capitalist system has and that the um, employer is supposed to provide something that's safe Um, and even in australia today everyone has the right to refuse to work in unsafe circumstances so why i say that like the covid19 crisis has cut through the constraints that the current IR system places on people like a sword through the Gordian knot is that everyone who is walking around who has to work in a place that is not their own home in Australia, which is basically everything that is now essential to keep us functioning, is walking around with a legal ticket to strike. Uh, And not like that's not just going to happen tomorrow just because someone has a legal opinion about it. Um, But that's my view. The scope of people being able to take action has widened and 
less so on our manufacturing side of things, but we know that like um, we've had warehouses, there was a Coles warehouse in Melbourne's western suburbs the other day that um, was on strike for six hours um, and, you know, there were calls coming in to the union office from quite high up political leaders about what the F is going on. Um, and so that that, reaffir- that reaffirmation of, A, the necessity of workers who are, who are in those sorts of systems that are required for social reproduction, and B, the ability that they now have, at least legally, to be able to strike, um, is the guts of what we need. That is the strategic engine of struggle that can take us forward. Um, but um, what is required is a whole bunch of education and support that goes on top of that. And so having like digital mass meetings, whether it's through Zoom or anything else, is an important role that can can be put towards that um, ultimate end. And um, so I, I suspect that, and now having something where it doesn't really matter if your one side of 15 people has their EBA or expiring on 1st of October and you, there's another site down the road in a, with a different employer but kind of makes the same things that has 25 people on a different EBA and it expires two years from now, suddenly there is now a very clear relation um, of solidarity immediately. Um, it was always there before, but immediately for for workers. So um, how you like build on that, I think that the main organizing flow, right, that anyone in any situation, in any part of the left, whether it's through trade union, whether it's just for their own workplace or whether it's um, in a community sense, in order to help recompose the working class in its great diversity, I think the key organising flow that runs with and alongside and supports the, um, the, the kind of pointy end of industrial action that I talked about before is really this, reaching out one-to-one, um, making sure that, that, that people are in contact with each other because we can't deny the reality of atomization that um, is really still there and present um, and needs to be overcome. And if anything might be more of a reality as we all sit at home if we're lucky enough to earn an income working at home, um, or we sit at home without much of an income other than what gets changed on a weekly basis with the crisis. B, with that one to run, reach out getting people into groups in some way, shape, or form, necessarily so digitally, um, and then using those groups as as sites of people saying, yeah, let's take an action and do things together. Because um, even in, in the real world, there are still, still actions that we can do together. Like there's nothing to, if we're doing a protest, um, yeah, we shouldn't get a bunch of people out in the street standing close to each other, but I don't see why you couldn't have 10 people um, in cars if they're lucky enough to have access to it. And yeah, there's a whole bunch of stuff about who who can afford it and whatnot, but, you know, 
the reality of the Australian urban landscape is that most people will still have a car in their household. Um, then there are other things around like solidarity actions that pe- can be done with people making noise from their um, from their uh, homes through their windows, um, as has occurred in some parts of Europe that can be put to quite radical ends. So it's there. You just what it. The good thing about this moment is that we can't just say let's hold a protest and do the same thing that we've always done and pretend that we're organising and winning. It actually will force people to think through different, at least, tactics and those tactics will are good and important. The key is, are those tactics attached to the engine of struggle? I would probably just give a shout-out. It's a pretty small thing in the scheme of things, but um, in terms of post-capitalist and organising for ownership structures. Um, We have a cooperative uh, called CoPower that is owned by a bunch of unions and uh, environmental groups and community energy groups that's expressed purpose is to bring electricity into social hands. Um, And there is an ability in these sorts of crisis if you have structures that still exist within capitalism but are not wholly capitalist driven to do different things so we um, through CoPower have set up a solidarity credit scheme where this entity is giving up 100% of its revenue as of today 1st of April for the next 12 months Um, and what it is doing is putting it back both domestically and internationally through Unionate Abroad a feeder to people economically impacted by COVID-19 Domestically, that will be back to people's electricity bills, but the nature of the solidarity credit system is that people who are still getting a decent income, they haven't, they're not subject to fluctuations, uncertainty, um, or massive reductions, can choose to allocate their solidarity credit, uh, and then people who need it can choose to like receive the solidarity credit because solidarity goes both ways. Um, and we can take a significant amount of money that would have otherwise gone to profit um, and have real relations of physically distant but actually existing solidarity within people and use that to acculture people to cooperative and post-capitalist forms of um, forms of structures. So that's a particular hobby horse that I have at the moment that I think in the wave of all this COVID-19 stuff might very easily get missed. And finally, I ask Godfrey how he thinks people who are not members of the United Workers' Union can relate to this strategy. Um, Well, we have a um, mass meeting today that's open to everyone, whether they're in our union or not, that they can go into if they just, like, uh, search for our website on a search platform that everyone uses that I probably won't name out of principled reasons. Um, and the details of that should be there or on our Facebook page. Um, but I would say that at the moment, we're going to get a lot of things wrong. We always do. We're people. Um, we're flawed. Um, but things that you think are good that our union is doing, if you're in another union, agitate within your own union not even agitate, just say, hey, I think we should do X, right? Um, Contact from members through to organisers and their office 
even if you don't experience any feedback as a member is still valuable and useful. Um, and I know that's not like a hugely inspiring thing, but it's a really simple thing that could be missed and can make a, a, a big lot of difference. If you're not in a union, um, join a lot of unions that cover people who are not working and don't have an income at the moment or have suffered a significant drop in their income um, will keep just keep people on their books and not charge them any fees through the process. So this is probably a good time to um, reach out and search for your relevant union. Um, there's a really high chance, given our coverage, that it's our union. Um, but reach out and join something because I think we're at the beginning phase of a really interesting process. Whether that bears good results or not in the next couple of months, I guess we can talk about it then um, I'm sure there's going to be a gap between theory and practice, but I guess that's an interesting topic of conversation of itself. If you're interested in reading more of Godfrey's work, you can find Godfrey on Twitter at G-E-M-O-A-S-E. And of course, you can find the United Workers Union online. Before I hit record on this episode, um, I kind of posed to Godfrey that listeners of Living the Dream are potentially divided into two camps, you know, friends and comrades who are highly critical of trade unions and friends and comrades who are heavily involved in trade unions. And sometimes that's even the same person. The broader question about the relationship of the movement of the class to trade unions in theory and trade unions in practice is an important one. Um, I think my thinking at this point in time coming out of this interview is that what the United Workers Union is doing is a real attempted intervention into um, the the balance of class forces in this country at the moment in a moment of a deathly serious crisis and therefore I really appreciate the time that Godfrey has given to this show and to the listeners and also given us a lot to think about and some points of action to follow up as well. So you've been listening to Living the Dream. I hope you've enjoyed the show. You can follow me at Twitter at on Twitter at with sober senses. If you um, really agree with something in the show or is there a point that you really disagree with i really encourage people not just to kind of debate you know get in contact on facebook on the on the blog on twitter but also drop us a line if you would like uh, a follow-up show and you, you've got something to say on this i hope everyone's staying safe uh, look after each other and yourselves before the workers stop working on may day you would see the system grind to a halt Proves how much we are undervalued International holidays by the sea All the big wheels have stopped turning Politicians spontaneously combust Parliament crumbles brick by brick The economy turns to dust The bankers stood still Still singing in
Revolution 